0: He may do that this morning, and um, he was very uh, enamored with, with the fact that I had come from such a background and that God had raised me up, and uh, so he's open to the gospel. I'd ask you to pray for his salvation and pray that he might uh, accept Yeshua, that is Jesus, as, his, as the one and only way to be saved. Now, I want to bid you a hearty shalom. You can respond. Shalom. That's great. Anybody know what that means? peace, it's also a greeting, it means hello, and it also means goodbye. Now, what other word in what other language also means both hello and goodbye? Aloha. Shalom and aloha may mean both hello and goodbye, but they don't mean I don't know whether I'm coming or going. (laughs) Also, if you happen to be Jewish and from Hawaii, I guess you could say shaloha. (laughs) One of the books that I brought along is this testimonial about this gentleman whose daughter, his Jewish daughter comes home one day and says, dad, guess what, I now believe in Jesus. I'm a Jewish believer, I'm a Christian. And uh, needless to say, he was shocked and set out to disprove her faith and he talked to the rabbi and he consulted books and one of the books that he consulted with was the bible and guess what happened you can find out by reading the book yes amen that's exactly what happened he got saved himself and uh, has a tremendous story for the lord and is actively ministering even now Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the jewishness of john chapter one so i'd ask you to turn to the gospel of john please I'll go ahead and read the first two verses as soon as you get there. First chapter of John, first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, John is intentionally paralleling the creation account in the books of Moses in Genesis, and he enlarges, he complements the creation account, enlarges and focuses in on certain aspects of it and expands upon it. And one of the things he's doing here is he's identifying one of the members of the triune God, of of God, as the Word. Now, this actually predates Genesis 1-1 because Genesis 1-1 begins with creation. John is talking about a time before creation, if you can even... Uh, elucidate on such a concept that the Word was already with God. And the, interestingly, in the Genesis account, the most common name used for God is Elohim. Elohim is actually a plural noun. So John is identifying one of the plurality of God, one of the members of the Godhead as the Word. And he says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's saying that the word is separate from God, yet is distinct from God, yet is God at the same time. Now, John was not a Greek philosopher, as some proposed that he was using this term called the logos in Greek. Uh, He was actually a Jewish fisherman, and uh, he wasn't that familiar with Greek philosophy. And so the concept that he's using for the logos, for the word, is the Mamra, which in Jewish thinking is a distinct entity from God, also the agent of creation, as we'll soon see, and the agent of revelation. He's the light of the world. Now, whenever Elohim is used, 90% of the time, the verb that's associated with is in the singular. This is a break in grammatical rules. It's a a tremendous exception. It's like saying, they goes, because goes is the singular form of go. You, You say, he goes. You don't say, they goes. And so Moses uses the singular form of the verb with a plural noun, namely Elohim. The central declaration of faith of the people of Israel is known as the Shema, and it's found in Deuteronomy, and it goes like this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And it means here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the word used for one is Echad, a unity. The same echadness is used when a man and a woman are joined together, Adam and Eve, and become one flesh. They become echad. So God is a composite. He's he's one, but he's not a singular one like you and I. And John has identified one of the members of this Godhead as the Word. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. John has already explained that the Word is God and now he's saying that all things that were ever created, everything that has ever been created, was created through God's Word because the noun, created through Him, refers to the subject in the sentence before, which is the Word. Now let me ask you a question. If everything that was ever created was created through God's Word, when was God's Word created? Obviously, He wasn't created, He was always there. John has said it three times that the Word is God, the Word is with God, and the Word is the agent of creation. When God spoke the universe into existence, He spoke His Word. And so, how do the Jehovah Witnesses get it wrong? Well, I mean, John has said it in three no uncertain terms that the Word is God, and later identifies the Word as His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, the Jehovah witnesses have their own translation and it says in the beginning called the New World Translation it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And so I asked Jehovah witnesses doesn't your Bible say that the word is a God? And then I ask well how many gods do you believe in? You see, the Jehovah Witnesses accuse Christians of being polytheists, but it's really them that have a problem reconciling the text without t- going into polytheism. Now the response will be, well, Satan was a god, the scripture says in Corinthians. But Satan was a false god, I explained, and Jesus is the one true God, and you can't have it any other way. Amen? Amen. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he isn't Lord of all at all and there's no no such thing as God, (laughs) Junior. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Jesus, we connect with spiritual life with the Lord, and the Lord guides us spiritually by shining his light through his word. The psalmist says thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And as we follow the Lord Jesus, we're following God, and we have the full revelation of God in Jesus the Messiah himself. And the light in verse 5 shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That word comprehend could also mean overpower. You may have a little footnote there. So John is introducing that there are that we're engaged in a cosmic conflict, and that there actually are forces opposed to God, and that is darkness. John commonly uses light and darkness in his gospel. And uh, so we're introduced paralleling the creation account with Satan. Now here's an interesting analogy. If you have two rooms, one that is lit and the other that is dark and complete darkness and you open the door between the two, does the light spill into the darkness or the darkness spill into the light? Obviously, the light spills into the darkness and dispels the darkness because the darkness in of itself has no substance. It's based on a lie. And Satan is the father of all lies. Now, there are many things that God wants to enlighten us about, and we'll find that out in verse 8. But right now... There was a man sent from God whose name was John. In verse six, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now that God is going to do something special, something new, something that he hasn't done before, a new revelation in the the person of of God, God is walking his talk, his word became flesh. He sends ahead a special witness in the person of John the Baptist now when john when god gave his revelation at mount sinai he sent to israel a special revelation in the person of Moses. And now God is sending this person, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist prepares the way for the king. It's as if uh, a dignitary was coming to town and you want to know, he may even visit your house, that he's coming. So somebody as a herald runs through the streets and says, the king is coming, the king is coming. And this way people have a chance to prepare themselves and uh, get their households in order because the king is going to come. Verse 8, he was not that light but was sent to bear witness of the light. So John was not the light himself, he came to bear witness as a special witness. Now you'll notice when uh, the religious establishment of John's day came up to him and said, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? You notice this is a common technique used in countering witnessing and testimonials because what they try to do is they try to put the focus on you. But John would have nothing to do with that. John simply said, hey, don't worry about who I am. Be concerned with the one who's coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. And so John put the focus back on the Lord and that's what we're to do when we're witnessing. And people say, well, you know, isn't it true that you were desperate in your life? Or uh, isn't it true that uh, you came from a religious background? The focus goes on God himself and the authority of his word. Verse 9 says, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That word lighteth also means enlighten. Now there are many things that God wants to enlighten us about. God wants to enlighten us how to live our lives. God wants to enlighten us about where to fellowship. God wants to enlighten us about what career path to take. But the most important thing that God wants to enlighten us about is himself. Amen? Amen. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. If the word was light and the world did not know him or recognize him for who he was or is, that means that the world was in darkness. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Even the people who God had cultivated a special relationship with, the people of Israel, even the people of Israel who had received a special revelation at Mount Sinai, and God had sent the prophets early in the morning to testify to them, even they were in darkness and did not recognize the word, the Messiah, when he came for who he was. He came unto his own and his own received him not. That meaning the Jewish people. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power or the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The key word there in that verse is receive. You see, it's God who takes the initiative in revealing himself and we simply respond. John the Baptist witness was a baptism of repentance. And John also said that he who comes after me came before me. Well, Jesus was actually six months younger than John the Baptist, and John is explaining that Jesus pre-existed his birth. And so simply, the salvation is to receive the Lord and believe on his name. But this word believe in the Greek is not quite like, oh, I believe in George Washington, I believe that, the Homer, that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's more of a trust, as many as um, to them he gave the right to, he gave even to them that trust on his name. It's not a matter of simply mental, intellectual assent to get saved, but you have to trust in him. And the repentance simply prepares our hearts to receive what God has for us which were born not of the blood nor, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to become a son of God, you don't inherit it, you don't reach it by cultural or social status, and uh, it's not something you achieve. It's simply by accepting God for who he is, who he was, and by God's will. We are saved, we are called by God's will, and saved by God's will. The Bible says that God preordained those who would be saved and those who would come to know him in a personal way and the word was made flesh this is the culmination of what john has been working up to is verse 14. and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as the of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth in the fullness of time god not only sent his word but walked his talk he came himself and God actually entered time and space as a man. Now, how did he do that? Well, first of all, God can be more in one place than he is someplace else. In other words, God in many times in the Bible has revealed himself in personal form. So as far as from our perspective, he's more in that one place because we can't sense or perceive him everywhere. And yet at the same time, God is everywhere. So God can be in one place and full and that person who represents God, who is God, is none only than God, Jesus is God, and yet God is still everywhere. And so the unity of God is not a singular entity like you and I, but rather a composite, a unity, a tri-unity. Now it's as if um, there was a king who loved his people, and he enacted legislation for his people, rules and regulations, because they were uh, born of his love for his people, designed to protect them, designed to protect families and covenant relationships. And one of the rules that he enacts is that if you get caught stealing, that is, uh, you know, something serious, you must be whipped. And uh, this this law is designed to protect. Uh, personal belongings in the in the community. Also, he passes another law that you must honor your mother. Now, for the sake of this illustration, guess what happens? One of the days, the king's mother gets caught stealing. Well, the king is in a bind. He can't have his mother whipped and yet at the same time honor her, honor her. So what does he do? The king gets up from his throne, strips himself of his royal robes, Lays his glory aside and condescends come down to the place where the whipping is about to take place. And before the whip comes down, he inserts himself between his mother and the whip. So that when the whip comes down, it comes down upon him. And so Jesus didn't compromise the law. He didn't annul the law per se, but rather he fulfilled the law. Amen? Now I want to share with you a little bit of how I came to faith. I was uh I had a good background. I grew up in a good home. I went to good schools. I had good teachers. But I knew that something was missing in life. And I didn't know what it was. I there was I wanted to serve somebody or someone with passion. And Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said if a man hasn't found something for which he's willing to die, he isn't fit to live. And I hadn't found anything that was that important that was worth dying for. And so I had this emptiness inside, this powerlessness, this vacuum in my life. And I didn't know quite what to do. Well, when I was growing up, drugs were quite popular. And I found when I got high, this emptiness just evaporated. It was dispelled. And of course it always came back, but then I could always get high again. And so at the young age of 15, I was getting high every day and drugs became my god. Everything was sacrificed on the altar of drugs. Drugs was more important than my health. Drugs became more important than my career. Drugs were more important than my family. Drugs were more important than paying the rent. And so after about 13, 12 or 13 years, I actually became homeless on the streets of New York City. Now you may have seen people pushing shopping carts or carrying bags of cans on the streets. That was me on the streets of New York City. That's what I used to do. Well, one night it was raining, it was pouring, and I had to get shelter. So I went under this overhang of this front entrance to somebody's house, it's called a brownstone. And I made myself very comfortable, I unpacked my bag, I took my shoes off, and I went to sleep. Well, in the middle of the night, it was still raining and pouring, a light, a bright light was shining into my eyes and something was hitting my feet. And I opened my eyes and I, it wasn't Paul on the road to Damascus. (laughs) It was the police shining a flashlight in my eyes and hitting me on my feet with his club to wake me up. I said, oh man, okay, he says, get out of here. I said, all right, all right. And I started gathering my things and whack, he hit me again on my feet. I said, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to bring my stuff with me. Okay, let me just put on my shoes and socks. And whack, he wouldn't even let me put my shoes and socks on. So I had to flee out into the pouring rain in the darkness, all groggy and stoned without any shoes. Well, I found an apartment building and I pressed all the buttons, all the buzzers, until somebody finally buzzed me in. And I went to the top landing just before you go out on the roof. And I found shelter there and I spent the night. Well, the next morning, I had to go where I had to go. I had places to go, people to see things to do. I had to get my drugs, of course. And I was downtown and I needed to go uptown. And I wasn't gonna let the mere fact that I didn't have shoes stop me. And if you think I was embarrassed, Forget it, I didn't care what people thought. I would wake up on the subway during rush hour and not know if it was morning rush hour or evening rush hour. And within a 10-foot radius of me, nobody came near me. That's how bad a shape I was in. And so I begin heading for the subway and I see somebody who looks like a street person such as myself and I step up to him, I say, hey, do you know where I can get a pair of shoes real quick? And he says, oh yeah, there's a church, you go down to 14th Street, Go west, hang a right, you can't miss it. So I hustled down to 14th Street, went west, and sure enough, there was this large building, this huge edifice, with all these steps going up to these large wooden doors. And I climbed the steps, it was a bit intimidating, this building, and I went to open the door, and it was locked. And I said to myself, the nerve of these people. (laughs) And they call themselves Christians. Yeah, just ask the standard that a Christian is upheld to, just ask the world that. But I agree, God does hold us to a higher standard, amen? Amen. Well, I tried pounding on the door, it didn't make much noise because it was so big and heavy like this pulpit. But being resourceful as I was, I found a doorbell. So I rang the doorbell, yes, and within a few minutes a minister answered the door. I explained to him my dilemma, he invited me in, sat me down in his office. I was very impressed that he left me alone in his office, that he trusted me enough to do that. And he went out and he came back, oh, let me just tell you, this minister had made a good impression on me. And he made me feel special. He made me feel like I was somebody. And so when he returned with a pair of shoes, and not only a pair of shoes, but with a pair of socks, I was really felt special and felt important, and I got this tremendous idea, like a light flashing in my mind, because I wanted to do something for him. He had done something for me. And what's the best way to please a minister? I said to him, sir, do you have a Bible? Now, I didn't care about a Bible. I wasn't interested in spiritual things at all. In fact, I thought I was doing him a favor by asking for a Bible. So he came back not with a leather bound, uh, golden grade, words of Messiah in red, colorful atlas, full concordance, large print Bible. Why did he come back with one of those Bibles? What would I have done with a Bible like that? I would have sold it. Instead he came back with a pocket Gideon New Testament, one that fits in your pocket, and it had the Psalms and the Proverbs as well. So I put it in my back pocket, I said thank you very much, and I went on my way. Now. I considered myself an intellectual, even though I was a homeless drug addict, still. (laughs) Yeah, and I liked to read. And I remember Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And I said to myself, hey, I like opiates. (laughs) Why not read a Bible? So I began right in the beginning with Matthew. And I read that first verse in the book of Matthew that said, that says, the book of the generation of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I said, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a Christian book. That sounds very Jewish to me, it's a New Testament. It says that Jesus was a son of Abraham. Well, that means Jesus was Jewish. And then also it said that he was a son of David. I remember at the Jewish summer camps I used to go to growing up, that we used to sing this song about David being the king of Israel and how he held a special place in Jewish history for the Messiah would come from his lineage. And so I was immediately enthralled and interested and engaged in the Bible, so I kept reading. Now, I was reading it meticulously and over a period of time. I don't know if it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, but I came across this place that said, the birds of the air have nests, foxes, have. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I said, wow, Jesus was homeless too. (laughs) But I was introduced to this character called John the Baptist. Now, there he was. I could picture him with a big bushy beard, fire in his eyes, rebuking the religious establishment of his day, saying, you brood of vipers who warned her to flee from the wrath to come. Because I knew religion was just full of hypocrisy. And... um, And uh, he just rebuked them and uh, he wore strange clothing. He had a camel hair jacket and a leather belt and the food that he ate, he ate honey and grasshoppers. Now I've only come to find out since I've been to seminary that there are certain grasshoppers that are kosher. Oh yeah, it's true, John the Baptist kept kosher when he ate grasshoppers, amen. And so I just pictured John with a big bushy beard, unkempt hair, fire in his eyes, strange clothing, weird diet. And the more I thought about John, the more he reminded me of some of the people that I hung out with. So I said, John is cool, I can hang out with him. So I kept reading. And then I got to Matthew 13. And it seemed that Jesus shifted gears all of a sudden, because now his teaching was no longer straightforward and forthright, but he was teaching in parables. Now my mind just didn't work like that. I I couldn't understand illustrations I never did growing up in school. We would talk in English about these illustrations in books and I'd wonder if we were reading the same book. But I didn't know what to do. Should I just give up reading? Should I skip it? Should I go back from the beginning? Should I just throw in the towel? But I decided, no, the book has been good up to now. Let me read and reread Matthew 13 until I glean some sort of insight. So I was exercising faith. Granted, it wasn't a saving faith, but it was a faith believing that Jesus had something worthwhile to say, even though I didn't know what it was. And that was one of the reasons, I believe, that Jesus taught in parables, to differentiate, to separate between those who would hear with faith and those who wouldn't. So I kept reading and rereading the parables, and I was especially intrigued by the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And uh, I believe we have time. I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went his way." Weeds are tares. And you can't tell the difference at first between a weed and a tear and wheat, Uh, I'm sorry, between the weed and the wheat until the fruit comes forth. Then in verse 26, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the weeds also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then has it weeds? He said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the weeds, ye root up some of the wheat also. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the weeds, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn well I was very happy and pleased to see that even the disciples who were eyewitnesses of Jesus ministry and miracles and resurrection didn't understand the parable and they asked him for additional explanation and in verse 37 beginning in verse 38 he does just that he answered and said unto them he that soweth the good seed is the son of man that's Jesus The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the weeds are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the weeds are gathered together in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, I didn't believe in hellfire and brimstone, but there was a fundamental truth that Jesus was explaining, and it resonated with me. Jesus was simply saying that one day there was going to be an end time judgment. Now I grew up with a strong sense of um, that things should be right. And I remember those words, famous words, you said them also growing up, you may have heard them today if you were around children, but that's not fair, oh, that's not fair. Our very hearts and souls cry out for justice. And everywhere I look, things weren't fair. There was corruption in the military, in politics, in business, even religion was full of hypocrisy. And Jesus was simply saying, one day, He was going to make things fair. And I figured, what better person to make things fair than Jesus himself? And at that point, I had accepted my first spiritual truth, that there there was going to be an end time judgment. Wasn't saved yet, but this was a seed that was planted in my heart and mind that would eventually radically transform my life and my entire world view. Now, so I was skipping along, I was very happy that there was going to be an end-time judgment because you've got to understand, when you're the least, when you're the last, when you've got nothing to lose, judgment is good news. And so I was saying, oh, there's going to be a judgment, there's going to be a judgment, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then, but I noticed in the parable that there was only wheat and weeds, you were either one or the other. There was nothing in between. So I said, well, I know I'm wheat. Even though I'm a homeless drug addict, I know I'm wheat. But I began doubting myself. So I started telling God that I was wheat and not a weed. I mean, I was courteous. I said, please and thank you. (laughs) I held doors for people. Listen to this, when I panhandled, I didn't ask women. I just asked men for money. What a good guy, in in Yiddish we say what a mensch, what a good guy I was, right? When it came to panhandling I was about a 10. But I realized I wasn't getting through to God so I started persisting and telling God that I was wheat. And pretty soon I got into a full blown argument with God. Now a few weeks or months before that I I didn't even believe in God. Now I was not only talking to him, I was arguing with him. (laughs) Today, when I argue with God, I call it prayer. (laughs) See, we have to sanctify it. I still argue with God, yes, and he always wins the argument. God is long-suffering, and he's always right, amen. So I finally, the sin in my life began showing up before me, before my heart and mind's eye, and I started seeing my life the way God saw my life. And I realized the way I had uh, treated people, I had given people their first taste of drugs. Uh, I wasn't supposed to sell blood, I had had hepatitis. I was brought up with a strong sense of social justice and restitution. And when you did something wrong, you went back, you repented and then fixed it and made it right. And I realized that there were things that I had done wrong that I could never go back and fix and make them right. I couldn't go back and get that blood back, and I, I may have ruined people's lives when I turned them on to drugs. I may have ruined the lives of their family. Granted, I didn't do it against their will, but I had some part and hand and role in destro- possibly destroying their lives. So i And then I thought about my family, so I finally admitted uh, to God and to myself that I was not wheat. There was no fruit in my life. My life was barren. Every relationship, including my family, had gone sour. And they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. They knew they couldn't help me. Anything they would do, any sort of support, emotionally or physically or materially, was just uh, to, would just encourage me to do more drugs. So they had to cut me loose. And, So I finally admitted that I was a weed and not wheat. And I knew that at the end time judgment, I was in for trouble. And that I would be judged as unworthy for the kingdom. But I knew that there was hope because I knew God wouldn't have gotten this Bible into my hands and Jesus wouldn't have shared all these things if there wasn't hope. It wasn't a saving hope just yet, but I knew that there was hope and so, Within a few weeks or a month, I heard about a rescue mission where they gave out clothes, shave, and a shower. That they had a Christian program. Now, I've been to a lot of programs before: Phoenix House, Sukasa, Samaritan House. They're very difficult, and they have these things called encounter groups. Anyone here ever heard of an encounter group? That's where you lock up 25 drug addicts uh, who have been in, who have been locked up for several months, and you say to them, "Okay, express your anger to each other." And let me tell you, a lot of unedifying language goes on. And what I learned in these encounter groups, they tell you, get in touch with your anger. Get, you're, you're suppressing your anger, that's why you do drugs. You gotta get in touch with it and let it out. But it seemed the, more, the, angrier, the angrier I got, the angrier I got. And the more I vented, the worse it got. And so that didn't really help. I had maybe changed for a couple of months, Stop getting high, but I always went back to my old way of life because I had only changed on the outside. God wanted to change me on the inside. So I heard about this Christian program. I figured maybe at a Christian program, they're nicer to you. <laughs> so I went to the front desk, I said, hey, I hear you have a Christian program. Can I get in? He said, yeah, just sit here. Somebody will come down and uh, um, interview you. So sure enough, within 10 minutes, a gentleman came down, extended his hand. He said, hello, my name is Michael Cohen. Now, if you know anything about the name Cohen, it is only a Jewish name. And I said, this is gonna be interesting. A nice Jewish boy is going to tell me about a Christian program. Well, it turned out that Michael wasn't only Jewish, but he was also a believer. And he quickly assessed where I was at spiritually, and he began sharing the good news with me. And Michael explained that I could be free from all the guilt, shame, and condemnation of my drug addiction and all my sins. And I could know I was free because Jesus had paid the price when he shed his blood. And God accepted it as a one-time-for-all-time atonement for sin. And I said to myself, well, wow, that's pretty good. But I've had fresh starts before, and I always mess them up. But then Michael went on to explain that upon accepting Jesus as my only personal savior, the only one that could save me from my sins, the one who had rose from the dead, openly displaying that he had defeated sin and death, Michael quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17 and said, therefore, if any man be in Messiah, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I knew that was just what the doctor ordered. God could recreate me from the inside. This was the miracle that I had been looking for. This is what could change me from a weed to wheat. And so I promptly said a simple prayer of faith, and one day I was a homeless drug addict on the street, and the next day I was living in the rescue mission, being discipled as a new creature in Christ. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, after being a believer for several months, I began visiting various local churches. And I found a church that expressed its faith in the Jewish Messiah in a Jewish context. See, that's the beauty about being a Christian is we have the liberty to express our faith in whatever cultural context we're in as long as it doesn't violate scripture. And the most natural context for the gospel, for the word, is Jewish culture, language, and tradition. And so here was, a, here was a congregation, the people were Jewish, the music was Jewish, the preaching was fine, the worship was great, and after the service, bagels. <laughs> I knew I had come home, oh yeah. So I began fellowshipping there. God opened the door for me to go back to school. I got an undergraduate degree. In the meantime, I had met a young lady, my wife, Diane, who was here today. Could you stand up and just face the congregation and say hi? So uh, I got saved in 1984 and we got married in 1987. And now we have four children. Our first one was in 1989. And so we praise God for that. And God also opened up the door for full-time ministry. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. This is my passion. This is what I long to do. And we know that the Lord is going to return at any minute, and God wants us to live our lives on the cutting edge. There was a time during my ministry where I started getting chest pains. At first, I thought they were insignificant, so I didn't tell anybody. But finally, they were increasing in intensity and severity, so I went to a doctor. And I said to him, uh, I have chest pains. He said, well, you need to go to the emergency room. I said, I pulled out my calendar. I said, doc, I have a pretty schedule, pretty busy schedule. When do you think I should go? He said, now. (laughs) So I went to the emergency room. It turned out it was nothing serious. It was not my heart. It was my stomach. Uh, that I have, um, that's not, uh, it has acid. And the acid affects my esophagus and creates pain in my chest and sometimes in my back. And so, praise God, it was nothing serious. But during that time, when I was having the chest pains, not knowing that it wasn't anything serious, my prayer was that when the big heart attack came, that because I thought of the way I had lived my life before I became a believer, that I would be found faithful and either preaching or teaching or evangelizing the word of God. And that's exactly how God wants us to live our lives, as if each breath could be our last. Let's pray.